welcome to episode number 137 of the Better Yet Podcast. I'm Tim Crisp, your host. Better Yet! It's a long-form interview podcast featuring musicians talking about influence, talking about writing, and talking about being around. Oh! Oh! We're playing them at the top. 11th Dream Day, Bubba's. We got a special one today. Rick Rizzo is on the show from the great, the mighty 11th Dream Day. One of my favorite bands ever. We got Rick here. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Fun one for you this week. We're back. It's been a minute. Things came up. Big changes in the world of Tim. But we are here because we got to be. How are we doing? I'd like to send some deep heartfelt thank yous to people who reached out about our episode on David Berman. It's very humbling hearing from you folks when it relates to something as heavy as that loss and the talk that we had related to it. There's still weeks later, there's still a hole there. Um, and one that I don't think is going to fully ever close up, but the reverberations of of David's death, I, I really still have been dealing with. I felt like it was, I was in such a haze for a while there and still kind of am to a certain extent. But, you know, I, at that time, barely listened to any music, which is such a strange space to be in. But having this interview in particular really helped pull me out of that, spend some time with some records that have really made an impact on me and, you know, to have a working goal with listening to those records. So I would also like to give a shout out. This is the this is the weirdest statement that I will maybe ever make on this show. I would like to give a shout out to Mr. Tony Lovato of Mest fame. If you listen to our episode from two weeks ago, I threw up our true crime parody podcast, haircuts and t-shirts, an episode about the time that Tony Lovato, you know, murdered someone. Uh, The nature of that program seemed very clear to me and to everyone else, except for Mr. Tony himself, who DM'd me and bashed my journalistic practices. Things seemed to be going well for him as he spent a good 24 hours hounding me on Instagram. Tony Lovato, if you're listening, you have an open invitation to appear on this program and we can talk things over. I have a public feud and this is amazing. I've always wanted a public feud, but more than anything, my number one dream is to refuse to accept an award. And I would love for you to help make that happen. The Chicago Reader has opened the polls for its Best of Chicago 2019. And I need you to vote for As You Were. That's right. David and I are combining our sway and betting on the odds. We want you to vote for As You Were for Best Music Podcast in the Music and Nightlife category there's a link in the episode notes. Go. God, I could really let it happen, you know. Always wanted to refuse to accept an award. Here's my chance. 
I know we're running a little long on the intro here, but there's a lot going on here. I made allusions to it when Steve Albini was here a few weeks ago, but I'm leaving the job I've had for seven years. There are a few reasons why, but one of them is just the fact that I've been having a hard time with anything that's physically intensive since I had surgery, so it's just time for me to do something else. I'm my first job interview in seven and a half years today. It went well. Me and Bernadette, oh, we got him famously. Um, things are up in the air a little bit. It's it's a little depressing. Self-worth takes a beating. Feeling a, a little stuck and unable, but I know that this is a good change. It's something that I've been thinking about doing for a long time. I tend to just need an extra incentive to get out of there and we found one we found one that didn't end with me like yelling at a customer so that's a positive thing but I did have the opportunity last week to visit with the folks at the AIDS Foundation of Chicago had a chance to meet everyone and learn more about the foundation AIDS Foundation of Chicago announced their getting to zero plan this past May, the goal being by 2013 to have zero new transmissions of HIV in Illinois and for everyone living with HIV to become virally suppressed. Incredible work, incredible people over there. It was a helpful reminder that there are things to be proud of, things to be excited about. If you haven't yet, all of God's money, our compilation and tribute to Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is available on our Bandcamp page, betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com. 100% of the proceeds go to AIDS Foundation of Chicago. Pick one of those up. Share it with anyone and everyone. All right. My guest this week is Rick Rizzo of 11th Dream Day. For 30 years, the 11th Dream Day have consistently been one of the best guitar-driven indie rock bands in the world for the world of bands that have combined Velvet Underground weirdness with the Neil Young propensity for extended guitar freakouts. 11th Dream Day has produced 11 long players that have never dipped from the utmost of quality. Rick, along with Janet Beveridge Bean and Doug McCombs, have evolved along with the years too with inflections of Americana and experimental electronic tones, one would certainly link to Janet's career with Freakwater and Doug's with Tortoise. At the center has always been Rick's guitar playing, which belongs right up there in the ranks of an Ira Kaplan or Carl Prakota. One of my favorite guitar players to have ever lived is Rick Rizzo, and he's on my goddamn podcast. The story of 11th Dream Day 2. It's a classic tale of mismanagement and shitty timing. They came up in Chicago in the late 80s, got signed to Atlantic Records along with the Lemonheads, and where the Lemonheads found their way into the mainstream, 11th Dream Day had a label who had no idea what to do with them, and the heart of the band's career was spent stuck with a label who did nothing to promote them. They'd eventually leave Atlantic and move out of being a full-time band, but they continued to make great, great records. For me, as I was getting deep 
into bands like Teenage Fan Club, Lemonheads, The Posies. Finding 11th Dream Day was like finding a hidden secret. So when I started Better Yet, the goal, maybe one day, use it as an excuse to talk to Rick and as a way to share one of my favorite bands ever with some wonderful wonderful people out there listening and that's what we did baby here's me and rick rizzo and you get a lot of you get a lot of perspective going all the way down north avenue i think yeah you get lots of different uh substrata Uh of the city (laughs) well you know it's funny that you good coffee hey thanks roasted (laughs) it myself um it's funny that you mentioned you know the the audience and the demographic changes because I I remember the first time that I saw you play it was opening for the Dream Syndicate, and it's probably like 12, 2012, 2013, and you played solo at the Old Town School of Folk Music, right? And you played, you ended the set with the day John Kennedy died by yeah. Lou Reed, and I was like, I already knew, I already knew that I was gonna go all in on this guy because i like a couple of his records and now it's just like oh okay i think that might have been the day john kennedy died the anniversary um it it was maybe why i did it it was actually and i remember this because my birthday is the 24th so that's the day oswald was shot kennedy was the 22nd and i believe we were there on my birthday I think that was a birthday gift was going but yeah it was that week and i think it was the 50th anniversary so everybody was talking about it a little bit more than they usually do Uh around that time that's cool i hadn't done a lot of uh playing solo at that point um that was a really that was a great show to do yeah and that was uh man that dream syndicate set that was a great set that, that they did yeah. Now, were you when you were starting up with Eleventh Eleventh Dream Day? They how did they they factored in pretty heavily? I would say like that brand of of well, you know, Eleventh Dream Day forms in 1983. Uh huh. Um, Janet moved up from Louisville, and uh, we started a band with. Um, together just jamming together but then we got a bass player early on janet worked at the heartland and the bass player shoe shoe bat worked at the heartland and okay so we started in 83 and around that time you know i was living in rogers park back then mm-hmm. and uh listening to wnur every day okay and so um i had met this guy um uh this guy Rawl stober um who brought a bag of records over to my apartment and uh one of them was the dream syndicate record but you know that that was the kind of stuff that i was listening to on and you are and um so when we f- were forming 11th dream day um definitely that california scene was in my head yeah um and uh you know as well as other great american indie bands like mission of burma um the feelies you know all that stuff was was in in that uh, stuff I was listening to. I'm doing the round, round two of uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life because when I was in high school, it was given to me, and then the audiobook just came out, so I'm just getting back in, and it's like when I'm 15, Mission to Burma, there's a couple songs that I'm like, all right, like this is cool, 
And now when I'm in my 30s, it's like, oh, everything is cool. Yeah. Um, that band kicked my ass. <laughs> I, I loved them. I loved them. And uh, so all that stuff was there. And, and I, you know, so, um, I, you know, Dream Syndicate was an influence in a way, just like, but I, I think more importantly is Dream Syndicate's influences were very similar to my influences. Yeah. You know, so, you know, if you go to Velvets and, right. and, uh, and Bob Dylan and punk rock and, and, um, you know, Mekons and, uh, you know, right. I, I, I listened to a lot of, uh, English, uh, post-punk bands too back then. Um, um, I think we had, and a, 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 Coltrane and, and country music was, hot, you know, people were listening to Buck Owens back, you know, it's like, so Interesting, I, yeah. I think, um, you know, I, I think back to those days of uh, and people that are similar age to me, like uh-huh. like Ira Fimiola Tango. You know, it, it's like there's a a lot of people were listening to. Um, you know, so our, our influences were, were were I think in the same ballpark. Right. It kind of it kind of rolls out of you know punk being so anti everything that came before, and then once you get a couple years into it, everyone's like, no, we. We like everything. Well, in the early '80s, a lot of people were considering the guitar to be dying. Yeah, as uh, as an uh-huh. instrument, <laughs> an instrument to uh, to play in a in a rock band. And keyboards were taking over, and um, you know, I, I there's never anything to me like like the sonic force of a guitar mm-hmm. played really loud. Yeah, um, and so um, you know, I I. I was gone in the latter part of the 70s and early, you know, right as 80 turned. I was down in Lexington, Kentucky uh-huh. playing um, music, and I'd gone to college there. Okay. And um, so I missed out on the Chicago scene. I missed out on I, – I wasn't part of that scene of, you Big know, Black Naked and Ray Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so um, – you know, I wasn't plugged into that. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a, it's a, it's a different kind of music than we were playing. Right. And I had a great appreciation. I saw Big Black back then, um, and uh, I didn't see Naked Reagan until like 1988. Yeah. In Amsterdam. I didn't see him until the 2000s. But so. <laughs> effigies. Yeah. You know, yeah. Definitely. They opened up for Pill at the Granada Theater back then. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so we were kind of in a different vein right uh, i guess it was more of uh well we were a mix of of different genres i'd say so when you come and you and you start doing 11th dream day it is in that space it's like kind of uh, the end of of that wave of punk and then is is rainbow club still going or is that like where everybody's at well what happened um so yeah so our first gig was in 84 and then uh, we were rehearsing on, and um, our bass player had uh, lived in this big, um, mostly empty building, a warehouse building that had been belonged to Illinois Bell, and her boyfriend owned the building, and so we just used this little corner room uh-huh. to rehearse in. And after rehearsal, it, it was very close to uh, the Rainbow, and so we would go over to the Rainbow and have drinks. Um, um, and, uh, that's where I got familiar with the rainbow. Um, and, uh, is that where you meet like Doug and, and Bird? No, you know, um, not at the rainbow, although, um, 
I, th- I think Doug might have been Doug. Doug and Baird were both living in Rogers Park then too. Oh, okay. And uh, we met them more through um, uh, Rogers Park. Um, things kind of revolved around Round Records. Round Records oh, was, was across yeah. from Loyola. Oh, okay. And Baird worked there, and Doug hung out there, and because Doug was going to Loyola back then. So when our bass player quit, um, we uh, we were in the process of trying to find a second guitar player because I I was not you know I I learned guitar as our band was forming, and so yeah you started after college right I didn't start playing guitar until after college yeah and um, and I was learning it on the fly I I would I had played bass a little bit in college in, uh-huh. a, in a a punk rock um, power trio. Oh sure. Um, called the Pods. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And that's not a bad. We did a lot. Not a bad power trio name. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not <laughs> entirely original, I guess, but right. You know, you know it fit. Um, what, what were you studying? Were you, so Lexington, that's University yeah. of Kentucky. Yeah. What did you study? Uh, it was marketing. Oh okay. Um, but back then, um, when I graduated, I, th- I think the economy was as bad as it could have possibly been yeah and so there were no jobs back then but i did work for uh, uh, ac nielsen um they do the marketing um market research company they're the tv ratings people but oh nielsen sure, i was sure, in a yeah. different different uh-huh. wing of it and i got assigned to upstate new york uh-huh in, in 1980 so i was by myself in a little town um it was uh horseheads new york next to elmira i ended up moving to ithaca but i was for that year i was alone uh-huh. Nobody around. So I would I would drive into New York City yeah. um, to see shows. My first time to go to New York City, I drove in on a Sunday afternoon, and it turns out The Clash were playing yeah. Bonds Casino. Uh-huh. It was one of these added-on shows, and yeah. I parked in Times Square because I'm a total <laughs> green, you know, like I didn't know what to do. You go to Times Square, right. park, and... And this guy's like, do you want a ticket for The Clash? Uh-huh. I'm like, wait, I'm getting ripped off already? Yeah. I just got out of my car. And it was for real. And so, like, he sold me a ticket for face value. It was, like, it was only, like, five bucks. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing The Clash my first time in New York City. But I, That's amazing. Um, but up, upstate, um, that's where I, I, I had brought a guitar there. And uh, it was the Neil Young Zuma songbook. So I could see the little Perfect. chord yeah. charts, and uh-huh. so I looked to where you put your fingers, and I knew the songs, how they went, and the melodies. So I, I figured out by looking at those chord charts. That's awesome. And uh, taught my taught myself how to play back then. So. And then and then when you get to a solo, you're just like, oh, this is this is great. I just got to hit this this note a lot of times over and over and over. The one again. night, the one note solo is a uh-huh. beautiful thing. <laughs> So I mean, usually I start with like where you where you grew up. So you're you're from Chicago originally. Was there music in the house where when you were growing up? Like what were you into? Yeah. I think before. Yeah, yeah. So college. I grew up in Northbrook, which is a suburb of Chicago. Um, my parents both loved music. Um, my dad, you know, was a big Sinatra guy. And yeah. Al Hibbard and and you know some some jazz and, and, and stuff like that. And he liked to sing, um, but he didn't do much with that. Uh, my mom, uh, you know, she, she loved, uh, like show, show tunes and, and they had a lot of records, you know, from plays that had gone to see and yeah. Broadway shows and, um, and, uh, 
And the Helen Reddy record was a big hit in our house by my mom, the I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. That, oh, yeah. That okay. one was on regular rotation. Right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so are you yeah. growing up with radio? It's it's big rock radio. You got, what, like The Who and bands like that? Yeah. The the key for me was AM radio. Uh-huh. And um, my uncle lived with us um, in the 60s, but he got shipped off to Vietnam, and he left me his turntable, and he had three records which is Otis Redding, The Rolling Stones, and a Bill Cosby Sings record. <laughs> but I had this little Sears Silvertone radio yeah. that you could put a timer on. So when I went to bed every night, I went to bed listening to um, WCFL, uh-huh. which played all those songs. So, uh, yeah, The Who I Can See for Miles was was one that was like, great really spoke to me. Um yeah, and that's when I became like just a, a big fan of music and started buying singles and records when I was about ten mm-hmm. years old. So when you're when you're at college, then is uh, what's going on in Lexington? You, did you eventually come back from upstate New York? No, Punk so, is alive and so well in Lexington. It was it was just graduate senior from high school, go to go to UK uh, four years, mm-hmm. graduate in four years. Um, and I had I'd started playing with these uh, my roommates um, in this little three piece punk band, um, mostly covers. And so I stayed. I, I came home to look for a job, but it was so bleak. Yeah. And I had met a girl at the end of my senior year. It's like, why don't you come back down to Lexington? Uh huh. And so I went back down, did more of that band, and then she decided to move to Florida. Uh huh. I followed her to Florida. Where in for Florida? For a summer. It's Delray Beach. I'm um, trying to think of what's what's worse, Delray Beach in the summer or upstate New York in the winter. It was a lonely place, and yeah, I, uh, uh, there was a lot of culture shock, and, and uh, you know, I I got some songs out of it, but sure, um, I didn't stay there long. She wanted to be an actress, mm-hmm. and uh, she wanted me to go um, uh, support her for this audition for a play she was going to be in. Okay. And, and uh, uh, at the end of the uh, audition, uh, the uh, director said, are you here to try out to me? And I said, no, I'm just here for support. And he goes, well, you know, we could use more males in this play. Well, the, long story short, I, I got a part in the play. Oh, no. And she didn't. I probably should have backed out. <laughs> I didn't. Um, so then you're just like rehearsing scenes in the apartment in front of her like hey can you help me and it was i got a good role too Uh (laughs) (laughs) no it was it was not good that was the beginning of the end so quick end so um you come back here 11th dream day starts did you meet you meet janet in kentucky i met her in kentucky because um uh, actually, she came up to Chicago with some friends of hers because um, I had lots of friends in Louisville, uh-huh. and she li- she grew up in Louisville. Well, okay, that was one of the places she grew up in. So, um, uh, I'm not from Louisville. I, I you know I I went to school in Lexington, but uh, met a lot of people from there. And then she came up, and I met her, um, and the rest is history. Yeah, sure. And and so eventually we're at the record store. Across the street from Loyola, you got you got Janet, Doug, and and then Baird, Baird, yeah. Baird, Baird, yeah. And it's it's so funny to think of the those early records and the way that you and and Baird play 
off of each other and the, the best way that you do that is to just not act like the other person is playing <laughs> it's just you're both facing your amps and just going yeah i mean it. i th I think um I, like i would i would advise musicians to listen to each other because uh -huh. i think the best music is made when you listen to each other and 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 and, and you know create that way but early 11th dream day was really four people playing with blinders yeah um and just going all out uh, <laughs> together separately it's such a funny kinship that you have with him too because you're you're you two are clearly on on the same level as far as well this is what i want to do with the guitar solo and if we could just extend the rhythm section for four minutes that would be ideal here <laughs> Baird was a really good player. Yeah. Um, were you? I guess I was were you? Not. As you're learning, is it just like, oh, okay, well, he's doing he's doing this thing really well, and I could probably do that. No, I could never do that. I can never. I was not the kind of player who could listen to something and copy it. So yeah. if if uh, I, I just couldn't, and and I think part of it is uh, this is a podcast, so you can't see this, but. My my the the spread on my hand from thumb to f to pinky is a very it's a small spread. I could not. I don't. I, yeah. I have. I don't. I don't think they're small hands, but the spread is small, and I could not do scales where I hit that fourth. Uh, you know that pinky note. Mm -hmm. So I would always kind of slide up to it. Yeah, and so. As since and since I played, you know, taught myself guitar, all the shortcuts I did are are who I am. Yeah. I, uh, you know, Barrett always said, when I learn how to do this lick, I'm going to move to Nashville. You know, he was he could really like work out this really cool like stuff. You know, like yeah. hot chick guitar player. Mm -hmm. I just was all over the place and feeling for things. Yeah. Um, you so, seem to find it, though, as a trial and um, error. Yeah, like a blind squirrel gets the nuts. Yeah, you know, sure. Sometimes. Sure. But, um, uh, yeah, trial and error and what sounds good, and, and, uh, and I guess I have a decent ear for it. Or, uh -huh. uh, and sometimes the mistakes are what are the, you know, what's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I think, it, you know, like having somebody who was really good on guitar as opposed to me, I think it, I think it was a good mix. Janet was learning the drums. Doug was learning his bass. We, uh -huh. we, we all kind of grew together as musicians. And now it's like I joke about it. I'm probably the fourth best guitar player in my band out of four <laughs> people. Uh, there's five. Um, so we, maybe the fifth. You asked me if, if I play music before we started. And, and as you're describing the, uh, the hand predicament and the pinky, it's just like, well, yeah, that's I reached my end point with it. <laughs> just not being able to yeah. <laughs> keep up. Um, so when you're, when you're starting up, I guess, where, where are you playing? I know that the, the punk scene of, of earlier years was in more of the Wrigleyville area a lot of the venues where were where were the earlier 11th dream day shows happening um well the the earliest ones um were at the west end uh -huh. which was at the uh corner of armitage and sheffield okay i want to yeah. say um 
and uh, Sue Miller um, of Lounge X fame. Yeah. Um, she booked the bands. Uh-huh. And so our one of our first gigs was uh, we we played with Green because um, Doug Doug was good friends with uh, Jeff Lesher from that band Green. Okay. And so they said, uh, "Do you want to open for us tonight?" So that was uh, one of our first gigs, um, and we would open up uh, for people there. That that bar is has to this day is like it's my all time favorite of a place to see yeah. a band or to be on a stage. Um, it was just really unique. The, Husker Du played there, oh, uh, the, the Feelies, um, Circle Jerks. Uh, it was, uh, wow. it, it was, it was a uh, Minutemen's show. There was, uh, yeah, it was so great. Uh, it was just a really fun place to play. The Yola Tango's first show in Chicago was there. Wow, um, and that's it's called. What was it called? West End. West End. Yeah, I didn't even. And I was that looking place. at it the other day. There's almost nothing on on the internet about West End yeah. as a club. Huh. You might get some anecdotes here and there, but um, it was great. And then, so from there, Sue moved on to um, book the Cubby Bear. Uh-huh. So then all our shows oh, were Cubby there. Because Sue sure. was giving us yeah. our $50 to open up for people. Uh-huh. And we opened up for the Feelies, and um, uh, we just opened up for a lot, of, a lot of people back then. And so, obviously, when she moved to Lounge X, we, we kept up. Yeah, following her there. The early songs, um, you know, I'm always when I when I go way back, like when I go to Prairie School Freakout, one of the things that I pick up on a lot is you have a storytelling sense to it. It's it's the the action that happens within your songs is more along the lines of a short story than it is like a typical pop song. I mean, I guess you know, like Cortez the Killer certainly. Uh, gave you a brief history lesson, but w- what was the influence in your earliest writing? Was it other musicians doing a thing, or were there fiction writers that you were liking um, at the there time? Were, there, were, there were definite, definitely fiction writers that, that I appreciated, but I'm I'm not going to pretend that 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 influenced me that much. I I think it it was mostly observing people around uh-huh. me and and taking their stories. Um, Janet wrote a, a, a lot more for the band back then. She was getting a lot of material from newspaper articles. Oh, so interesting. So like the death of Albert C. Sampson, uh, you know, she saw a newspaper article about a guy who killed a bunch of people in Missouri or wherever yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and uh, um, me, it was more like um, um, observation of of other people. Yeah. and It's just got this like gothic sense to it because a lot of the stories are just so dark. Yeah. Yeah. Darkness... <laughs> uh, Darkness is our friend. <laughs> I love it. So when you go when you go down to record Prairie School Freakout, I I've read a six hour session and I've read fifteen. So somewhere between six and fifteen hours making I think that we, record. I think we set up in the afternoon and walked out of there at four in the morning or so. Um it's crazy. And, um I was working I was still working for AC Nielsen back then and and so like guys I have the weekend to go down so we we had the weekend uh drove down there on a Saturday came back on a Sunday so everyone can go back to work and uh so we had one day in the studio and uh we went back down there to mix it uh-huh. at a later date but the actual recording was just one you know set up and start playing and it was some it was hot um and we were getting kind of tired, 
And Janet just started ranting at us. Come on, you know, we got more we can do. We got, we got, let's keep going. Uh-huh. And, and that, that let's keep going turned into a couple more hours of, uh, of like the wee hours where I think some of the most, um, um, just out of our mind playing came from. And yeah. I think that record reflects what you were talking about earlier of, of four people kind of veering off from each other. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because it's just, uh, it's, it's pretty much mayhem on some of the songs. Yeah, about six minutes into 10th Train, it's like, whoa, all right. <laughs> yeah. So, and that came out on Amoeba. And I didn't even know that Amoeba had a label. I just think of the store. I don't think it's common knowledge that they had, you know, a couple years of putting records out. Okay, so I can I can set you straight on this one. It's not the same Amoeba. Oh, so okay. Amoeba Records that's there in L.A. today yeah. did not exist as Amoeba Records when my friend from college, who was, he was a, he was a chemical engineer who had moved out to L.A., um, and he he, uh, he had the money to put out our first uh, EP, gotcha. And, and Prairie School Freakout. Uh huh. Um, he just had the money, and he um, and he was a big fan of music, and he ended up putting out a few records. Um, a band called the Hollow Men from Des Moines, um, Precious Wax Strippings, who was a Chicago. They were contemporaries of us. That was uh, jo- the drummer Johnny is uh, the Johnny John Herndon from Tortoise. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and then Freakwater. Yeah, uh, their record came out. Yeah, because I'm looking at their Amoeba. Discogs page, and it's yeah. like it's like this is the Eleventh Dream Day, you know, record label to a certain extent. But yeah. then I see the California thing on the on the back of my record, and I'm like, oh, is this the is yeah. this the chain, or I guess yeah. the small so, yeah different chain. different Amoeba. Uh huh. Gotcha. So when do when does Atlantic come into the picture? You can take a sip of your oh, coffee. Yeah, that's I right. can... Um, so. The the first EP comes out in '87, and then Prairie School Freakout in '88. And Prairie School Freakout um, kind of put us on the map overseas. Um, New Rose Records put it out, mm-hmm. and um, in France, and then uh, England. Uh, there was a magazine called a fanzine called Bucketful of Brains, and they they had uh, um, picked up on it, and so. Um, Prairie School Freakout started growing and, and got the attention of Bettina Richards, um, from, who was uh, working A and R at Atlantic. So th- this this is 1989. Yeah, and we had recorded uh, the material for the record that became Beat, and we had recorded it in Chicago with the intention of putting it out on Amoeba as our third record on Amoeba. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, but in the meantime, Bettina um, had interest in the band and said, "I'm going to come see you." And we had no aspirations to do uh, be on a major label. It was right. it was it was wacky because back then I think the only bands that had really jumped to a major might have been the Replacements. And Husker yeah. Du possibly, but mm-hmm. but all the bands from the indie scene. Um, of the 80s had not really made that move yeah i think so, that that's even before like sonic youth does the thing with geffen and you know we were a little frustrated with um with amoeba we didn't feel like 
it could keep up with where we were headed. So we were at the time, we had actually talked to um, the people at Rough Trade. Um, uh, and, and so when Atlantic came calling, we, we had a show at Metro. Um, and uh, we played what um, I considered to be a crappy show. Uh-huh. And uh, we were up in our dressing room after the show, hanging out, and uh, uh, a friend of ours, David Yao um, from mm-hmm. uh, Jesus Lizard, yeah. was was in the dressing room. We were David worked with us. Uh, Janet and I both worked at a, a small um, um, record distributor called Kaleidoscope. Um, Dan Koretsky from Drag City worked there. Oh, and, cool! Uh, yeah. Uh, the idea of David like having a job is just blowing my mind right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so David was up there, and in Bettina's walking up the steps, and Baird takes a chair and he just hurls it down the steps because he's so pissed off about the show. Uh-huh. And the the chair is rattling down the steps as Bettina starts to walk up, and this is the scene she enters. And I'm right. like, oh wow, Bettina, hi, come on up, come on up to the dressing room. And David, when we introduce her, he said, oh, that's the record company, bitch. Oh my goodness! So our introduction to Bettina was not the best, uh-huh. and it's like, oh, Bettina, that show sucked. Uh, no, 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 it was great, and I'm going to come back, and yeah. don't worry about it. And and then we ended up signing with Atlantic. And that was like, was it that I'm tr- I've been trying to put piece it together? Because was it Atlantic was just signing a couple of alternative acts, or was it right? Was so it- the majors had seen that some of these indie bands were selling, Uh you know, because Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr., you know, there were some, you know, bands doing really well. And I think they, they, they wanted to hedge their bets a little bit. And, and so there was this wing of Atlantic that was going to be devoted to these little bands that might do something, you know, just, just to cover their bases. So there were no real bands of note on it, on the label at that point. Um, but Bettina also got the Lemonheads Mm -hmm. uh, around the same time. Yeah. And the Lemonheads had been on Tang records and, and they were coming up in the world. So, um, uh, you know, it was, it was growing, but it, it was small, but the thing is, is it, is it, it, it got our name on the map in a bigger way mm-hmm. because uh, I guess with Atlantic's muscle, um, you know, CMJ, the College Music Journal, we, you know, we were we were at the top of the rate of the college charts back then. Uh-huh. We were, you know, right up there in the top. Um, and MTV was playing our video every week because we were on the, in the top 10 oh, wow. of CMJ. Yeah. Back then that meant something right. to be on the top of the college charts. Um, yeah, of for course sure. We know after 1993 and the post, there's pre-Nirvana and post-Nirvana, right. in, in that world. Well, it, it's it's interesting to look at it as you have REM and then you have the the growing kind of surge of of bands like you're talking about, and in 1989, like it makes a lot of sense. Pretty much anybody that they're signing is going to make sense for the band that turned out to be Nirvana, which isn't very similar to what you all were doing or what, I mean, Dinosaur is, is close, but it's not, nobody gets it perfect like that. Mm-hmm. But to see the, the different types of iterations of, well, this could be the thing that happens a few years from now, 
is interesting to look at because it makes sense for them to go with a band like you. Yeah, and and our first record did really did really well. It didn't do well in the major label sense of selling records. Right. But it was more than we would have sold um on a on an indie label at the time. And back then on you know when Beat came out and we went to Europe for the first time and Europe was just ready for us. Mm-hmm. We, that was a a really great tour that first time we went to Europe and um so we came home from that um feeling like you know it was a great success um and and um and ready to move on you know so when when did the issues with Atlantic start well so uh we we wrote and recorded live to tell which is our second record and we did that one in a barn down in Kentucky and had a mobile truck down there and recorded it a um, lot, lot of fun um, you know we, we felt that we were capturing our sound a lot better and um, just before the record came out Bettina who our, she was our ENR person um, she was leaving the label uh-huh. along with the head of that alternative department uh, Peter Kepke right Peter Kepke yeah, yeah. and they uh, went to London Records where uh-huh. Bettina signed the Meat Puppets Oh, okay. Um, and uh, so when she left and Peter left, it left this void right as our record was going to be worked. Yeah. And I got to tell you, you know, it's like that division of the, that little part of the label was still like they weren't really caring that much because nobody was really selling that much. The Lemonheads had started... They they had their success by by coming up. Uh, they had a single of Mrs. Robinson right at the end and of that it's made a shame them about like Ray. pop stars right especially in England uh huh um so but even but, that's a couple of years later but, right um yeah I guess and um that's probably because we we ended up playing shows with them I think um, that your your first is beat and and their first is Lovey which is it's not there yet mm-hmm. right not, not until mrs robinson i mean it, it's for there for me but it's yeah. not yeah. <laughs> for yeah. yeah um so i mean live to tell did even better a little bit better in sales um you know it was top 10 in the new york times for the year's records um it, like the critics liked it a lot and we toured with yola tango over there uh-huh. in europe um we did a a long five-week tour with Yola Tengo where we alternated headlining slots. And um, last time I saw Ira, he said, you know, that tour, um, that was the first time that we I really felt like, you know, we had this audience that was responding to us in a major way. Yeah. And it, for both of us, it was just like a, a, a really um, wildly successful tour, our biggest crowds ever. Um I saw them, sorry to interrupt, but I saw them, I think the last tour that they came through here when they did Two Nights at Talia Hall, yeah. and I took us for the first uh-huh. one, and I was like, I feel like the second one's going to be better, but couldn't get tickets for the second one, I went to the first uh, one, they played yeah. They played Tom Courtenay, and I'm like, alright, uh, that, that that's cool, and then my friend sent me a video from night two, and I'm like, damn, they're playing, I heard you looking, who's that? Fuck, that's Rick, god damn, <laughs> alright. Um, but the the problem, and this this is, this kind of speaks to the label issue, is they were on an indie label, 
and had all their merchandise to sell. Yeah. We were on Atlantic. We were not allowed to sell squat. Really? We couldn't sell it. We couldn't bring a record and sell it. All Why not? The, we weren't allowed to. They had huh. salespeople to do that. Yeah. And so. And the salespeople need so, their jobs. Like so. people would come up and they'd want to buy a record. As and one all we does had, at a concert. Right. right. And all we had w- were our t-shirts. Uh-huh. Um, which we sold, you know, great amounts of t-shirts, but. We didn't have music to sell, and it was so frustrating watching Yola Tangle be able to sell all these records they had, and we had nothing because they could, you know. And, and in Europe, like all the mom and pop record stores that were really excited about sub pop, they had a hard time getting our record because the, the label, Warner Brothers, you know, WIA, uh-huh. um, Europe, was, you know, selling to the towers of Europe, right. you know. Um, and so there was this giant disconnect at a time where we were at our most popular. I felt like it was, we were, you know, we had gained an audience, mm-hmm. no doubt. We had gained an audience, but we had left behind really the, you know, the, the grassroots part of it that, that it got us there. And I, and that I, I really, um, and even like what, what you're doing while you're on Atlantic seems to be this, you're doing this despite, Atlantic they they seem to have like this like oh this is a thing let's put two people there and then uh let's not look at our infrastructure at all let's yeah and they didn't they didn't know how to they didn't know what to do with our second record with live to tell yeah and so you know after that bout of touring um, you know, even in the States, it was our best tour ever. We were, you know, um, it was it was going really well. And so, but we were unhappy because Atlantic just was not, it wasn't a good match at that point. We had a seven record deal. Jesus but, Christ. Um, part of the, the issue of neglect was that nobody sent us the letter that said, we would like your next record uh, to get started. Nobody, uh-huh. there was in the contract, you know, it said you have to t- send this letter. So we saw this loophole, and so we decided to, we were going to get out of it, out mm-hmm. of our contract, which we were doing, and we recorded uh, material for a, th- a n- our next record, and we actually started shopping it around. But that's when uh, um, Atlantic came in. There was a new um, president, which was Danny Goldberg. Um, and he flew into Chicago and he convinced us to stay for the third record because, um, he said, we're going to really work it hard and we're going to stick with you. And, um, you know, he saw how long it took Sonic Youth to break on their, their first Electra record. Right. Or were they Electra? I forget. They were Geffen, I think. Geffen, Geffen, that's right. Um, and, uh, and so we thought, wow, that's commitment in retrospect, you know. Looking back at it, we did the tours, and we didn't increase the sales. And by the time, you know, just you know, several months later, it was it was obvious it was over. And before right. before our last tour, going to Europe on the El Mudio record, um, and we felt like we had made the rec- a, a really good record. We yeah, were really absolutely. happy with it. Really, really happy with it. But um, we just knew, you know, I I was like Janet and I had a, a son by that point. Uh huh. Um, you know, when we were touring with uh, with uh, Yola Tengo on that on that second tour, um, she was pregnant. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, as in, while we're touring. So between the second and third records, our son Matt was born. Is that why Rick Menk plays drums on El Mudio? Rick Menk plays drums on El Mudio on one track. Oh, okay. Because okay. he's a drummer. Because he's Rick Menk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw that credit and I was like, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because that record, that El Mudio record, when we were looking for a producer... Um, we're talking to a lot of people and, uh, we ended up going with Jim Rondinelli, who was, um, the engineer on the Matthew Sweet girlfriend record. Right. And so we knew we didn't need to go for Fred Marr, who, who I believe was the producer of that record, um, um, because we thought like, let's get the engineer who got the sound. Yeah. And so we recorded at the same studio in New York. It's called Sorcerer. And um, we we uh, we got we stayed in New York for a month and a half and made that record mm-hmm. in that studio. We walked in and Television's gear was all sitting there because they had just recorded a record. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Robert Quine came in uh, one day to check us out no way yeah it was it was pretty great and tom verlaine uh, uh-huh. was there um oh man to pick up some tapes uh-huh and so we met him then uh, it, was a, it was amazing that's it was wild really, really fun but i i think it gets maybe lost to time a little bit how big that matthew sweet record was it was big it was it was enormous yeah. and yeah. i and i think that the record that you made with Jim, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, and it sounds great. And then when you hear what you did with Brad Wood a year earlier or whatever, uh, you released it as New Moodio. Right. And you just listen to those sessions, and they're so loose and imperfect. Yeah. And it's like... You listen to that, and it's like, oh man, this band is excited about not being on that record contract yeah, anymore. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of energy on that those tracks, and we and so we did re-record them all. Yeah, with Jim Rondinelli for uh, for Atlantic, um, and you know some of the performances I think improved. Some of them were not, maybe didn't capture the same kind of energy that the first time around but i think the performances are good and i don't think the record i'm very proud of the record it's my favorite one and it's the first one i heard and even even it's like new moodio is it's like a different thing and i like it for different reasons it is do you ever i mean i feel like there's there's so much room for armchair quarterbacking and, and looking back and the fact that you mention having the record that you make with Brad and the idea that Matador puts that record out, it's so different. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you oh, no, think about uh, that? Which Matador didn't put it out. I know, but like, I guess in, in the, the scenario that you're describing of shopping that one around oh, to right. think if, if, if that had if gone, would have gone back right. to Indy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard, it's, it's hard to say. Um, in retrospect, I don't think I would change anything just because, um, I think, uh, I think it was going to be the end of the line for me wanting to do the band in a full-time way anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, I told myself before that El Mudio, before we, we set out on the road for it, 
um, since we had Matt traveling around with us. Matt, you know, was making the trips to Europe with us and all over. In the United States, we were using an RV, which was fun. We brought our dog and a nanny and bicycles. And yeah, (laughs) it was just a, a great time. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, it was it was really enjoyable, but I I knew um, that it was not going to be something that we could sustain, um, sure, or that I was interested in sustaining as a full time, you know, record and hit the road for six months kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't think we were going to be able to do it with Matt, and so that's when I decided I was going to go back to school and get a, a teaching certificate and teach. Yeah. And so I did that. And right around that time is when, you know, uh, Janet already had Freakwater. Uh-huh. And so Freakwater started doing more stuff. And then Doug was, uh, there was the beginnings of Tortoise. Right. And so um, it all branched out. We recorded um, a record called Ursa Major. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the meantime, you know, we had, we had gone from Atlantic and so we made this, uh, what was our next record, um, Ursa Major. Um, and that, that one came out on uh, Atavistic here locally mm-hmm. and then on City Slang in, in Germany. And um, just as we were going to tour that, uh, we had a tour that was going to be us, Tortoise, and Sea and Cake. Oh, wow. But this is before C&K and Tortoise are yeah, yeah. what they are known as now. And so we had a tour all lined up. And at that, uh, right right before the tour, um, uh, we found out our son Matt was had been having seizures. Oh. And so um, there were some obvious problems, um, developmental problems he was having. And we figured out. A doctor finally figured out what was going on. Yeah, and uh, he was the eighth person in the world diagnosed with something called glucose one transporter deficiency syndrome. Oh, and um, it was going to be treatable through a diet, a ketogenic diet. Oh, wow! Um, which is popular now, but right, back then right. nobody knew what the hell it was. Uh huh. Um, so there was no way we we're going to go hit the road. Right. So how long? How long do you spend? trying to figure out what's going on we went to every doctor possible oh, it's fucking terrible. and we were going to go to johns hopkins because yeah. uh, we had a lead on maybe how to control the seizures from something that was going on with kids taking oil uh-huh uh, kind of oil and um and there was a doctor here that finally did a, a a test that turned up that his brain wasn't getting the glucose it needed oh okay so and he's 27 now and an amazing okay. amazing young man yeah who, who writes songs and oh no way um he's an interesting kid yeah no, he's not a kid anymore he's right a big burly man but yeah uh he's he's amazing no carbs um he does not he hasn't been on that diet oh for okay years. yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> but, yeah wow that's that's some heaviness it's yeah, like any yeah. any like you know i want my career to or my, I want my artistic career to go a certain way. It's kind of just like, well, fuck, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. A tortoise and Sea and Cake went ahead and did that tour. Yeah. And people at the shows were like, wow, asking Doug, you know, Doug probably got really sick of it, but like, uh-huh. where's 11th Dream Day? Because right. people didn't get their money back. They The shows were happening, 
but it turns out they just love tortoise and cinnamon <laughs> cake. So uh, it it worked out really well uh, for those for those guys. Oh wow! And, uh, it's funny to 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 look at Ursa Major and and to think that it comes out you know a month before Exit in Guyville and. Is that to just the timeline on that. Yeah, I, I wow. checked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And to like, it's just like all the all these spots where the timing is just like, what are you gonna do? But like the amount of vitriol that you're spinning on that record, like you're you got a bone to pick with a lot of people. Yeah, I I do, and it's uh, it's uh, it's very hazy. Uh, the lyrics don't spell it out exactly, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was kind of my bone to pick record a little bit. Um, so you end up going into teaching. What were you teaching? Uh, I I just uh, I, I ended up teaching middle school. So yeah. um, I, I I started out uh, as the art teacher. Uh, and this is Albany Park uh-huh. Multicultural Academy in Albany Park, and uh, then I got my own classroom where I taught language arts and social studies. Oh, that's and great! I did that for fourteen years. Yeah, you like middle school kids. I I loved it. I, yeah. I it it's been about eight years since I was there, and um, um, I really missed it so much for for a long time, and I yeah. still do. But uh, now that I'm teaching college kids, uh, they're they're great too. So, um, I I enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a great career to get into, and um, and you know, as you know, the band never stopped playing. Right. And uh, there's always enough stuff going on with the band to make me happy and then and then teaching was a great a, a great career did it take a did it take time for you to i guess be comfortable with the shift as it was because it's like it's like this band is is doing something very different for you now but obviously it's it's fulfilling in so many different ways it it, it took it did it hurt for a while because ursa major i thought but to to this day, it's still I think my favorite record of ours, um, and I thought we really nailed it. And it's a real, it's a really unique record in that it was unlike anything we had done in the past. Yeah, there were some threads that came through, but at the same time, there was more. Uh, it was it was getting a little. Uh, Doug's personality was coming through a lot with some of the material. Right. Um, it's a little more experimental in some ways that, and that carries on into our, you know, as, as we went on too. Um, and I just thought it was a great record, but like the touring days was over. We, we did, we did go, um, to, uh, uh, play some shows in Europe again. And, and since 95, like I haven't been out to play California Mm-hmm. Um, with the band, um, you know, a lot of places around America we just have not returned to. Anytime we do a record now, we'll play New York, Chicago, maybe a couple of places in between, and go to Germany and the Netherlands and the places where that was where we had uh, in England where we had a bigger right uh, following too. And they're still ripe for you, man. So I it, it hurt and. Um, but at the same time, it was the decision that I had made. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was comfortable with it. And Freakwater um, ended up doing great, and Tortoise ended up doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I just think it worked out the right way. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we would still be a band if it if we had kept charging. 
right ahead you know it's funny the way you describe ursa major i i think is the way that i that i experience eighth it's it's so free form and the presence of of doug and john too it's the john mcintyre yeah the openness of it and the the idea of putting different things underneath other than just guitars and bass you know those electronic pulses and things like that yeah and and it's it's interesting to take in i think with the idea that this is a record that is just for you now it's just for the band now it doesn't have to be yeah for uh you know how are we what are we going to make a video out of motion sickness right yeah <laughs> right right <laughs> the teaching component of of your story is something that i've been locking into mm-hmm. i'm on my way that coffee that i roasted i've been doing that for so long now and it's time to do something different i've always just danced around teaching uh-huh. I think it would work out. I think I would be good at it. But I don't know. I think it's a it's a hard profession um to be like I, I was in the Chicago public schools and I you know every year by February I wanted to quit. Sure. And then after about 5 years it sort of clicked in and I I got it. I I got what what it was all about and I I figured out how to how to do it really well and uh, then it was kind of a cruise, but it's a difficult job. It's a really hard job, yeah. Um, to do well, uh-huh. you see a lot. Of, you see a lot of people not doing it well. Um, my school was is an excellent school, and um, it was really fulfilling. But it, it was not an easy job. Yeah. You know? Do they think your kids were probably like, "Oh man, Mr. Rizzo is in a band. That's cool." <laughs> the first wave of students. I started there in '98. Uh huh. Nobody gave a crap. You know, <laughs> nobody cared. Nobody cared. And then, then as time went on, I guess it got somewhat cool. But kids—they're they're so uh, egocentric. They don't care about you that much. That's got to be nice. That has it's to be fine. really nice to 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 be around someone who doesn't care about you in that way. And it, and that's the key to teaching is is um it's it's not teacher centric. It's, it's it's the world should revolve around the students and what they know, not not what I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny to you know go through the, the the later records and then it's the story becomes, you know, this this tale of 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 poor timing and and major label befuddlement and then once you get into like 2006 it's like oh well mission of burma's back like 11th dream yeah you should get yeah. this this sort of treatment now too <laughs> um but you've kept on and i think that it's it's been it's always refreshing to see a thing that continues for its own purposes yeah well we never made records for anybody but ourselves and um and i don't think we ever compromised who we were when we were on a major or not and we always did it for the right reasons yeah and that was because we enjoyed doing it we've never not enjoyed it and there have been big gaps you know years that have passed where we're not doing anything we'll, we'll always play there's never been a year where we haven't played at least one or two shows, mm-hmm. and uh, um, 
and it, it and it's always been fun. So there's no there's never been a reason to stop doing it. It's nice that you found yourself back. Uh, you you and Bettina went separate ways, and then you find yourselves. Yeah, I mean, back. I felt guilty when we put out Ursa Major with on Atavistic. Atavistic did a, a great job with it, but Bettina at the time was just starting Thrill Jockey. Uh huh. And um, and Atavistic came at us. Um, you know, with a lot of great ideas and energy, uh, they, they just they were they were they had good ideas and were uh, um, seemed they're at the right right people at the right time and they were. I always felt guilty about it with Patina. So when we ended up coming back with our next record, mm-hmm. uh, which was Eighth, um, to put that on in Thrill Jockey, it was uh, we'd come full circle and yeah, Thrill Jockey's a, a great label. Yeah. Um. Well, I mentioned to you that, you know, my, my dad and I, we went to all those hideout shows for mm-hmm. Works for Tomorrow when you were putting that together. And so when that record came out, you know, I was familiar with the songs. But what what really hit me was the the lyrics. Obviously, you take them in differently when you're listening to the thing at home on headphones than you do at a show. But True. It, that's some heavy shit on that mm. record. That's that's emotional content that I that you really never were that direct about before. And there's, I I think your your observations are really um, sharp because um, earlier you said you know uh, talked about how we were writing stories and you know um, stories about murderers and right and, and I think what happens in your life and I, I think what happened to me as a songwriter is I went from that time of observing things around me and uh, and writing about those experiences of, of, of people that I would see um, struggling. And um, and at some point, life turns in on you. Yeah. And, and you get very reflective. And it wasn't until my 40s, really, that I started realizing things about my family and... Um, and 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 who I was and 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 to where I really started putting it together and that works for tomorrow record. Um, the songs are, hold together thematically really well, and that um, they all are about that um, sort of examination of of family and and the psyche that uh, you know the underlining. Um, things that are part of you now um that stretch back to people that came long before you and Mm -hmm. um, part of it came out of um my friend tara key um, from the band antietam is a she's a research librarian at Uh columbia in new york and um she you know i always knew about the italian side of my family Mm -hmm. um the, the rizzo side but my mom's side was a mystery to me um and she's Swedish, um, but it, when Tara started helping me, I got all the way back to the 1600s. Oh wow! And and um, and realizing things about my family that that um, uh, when I when I started reflecting on them, I started understanding who I am now. My grandfather um, uh, killed himself. And in the house that I grew up with, and I, uh, oh, wow. uh, the the myth is that I was in the room when he did it, 
because uh-huh. it was a very he was living with us. My parents had just been married. I was a baby. Yeah. Um, and he was depressed because his wife had died of cancer, and he was drinking a lot. And um, this information was never told to me by my mom, and we never talked about it. And she yeah. she herself died. Uh, uh, 2002 and we had never really spoken about her side of the family uh-huh. and once I started filling in some of the blanks and realize you know it just it made me really reflect on on who I am and uh, so I was piecing it together is it is it um, I guess is that the antecedent of of all of it is that you find out this information or is it your feeling you're feeling away and then you find out that information and it, and it pieces it together so it was yeah uh feeling kind of lost um you know I, I was feeling lost i was i was uh i was not comfortable um with who i was and um and then just trying to come to an understanding about it all was uh-huh. really powerful for me. Yeah. Um, was it, is it, is it all right? Are we going into this a little bit? I don't yeah. want to pry too much in no, your, in no, your I'm, personal I'm life. Talk about anything. Yeah. I mean, it's I, cause I'm feeling so similar right now, I guess is where, is where I'm at. It's, it's mm. like, all right, I'm, I've been doing a thing for a long time and, start to look back and realize how it hasn't been fulfilling for quite some time and then you get kind of lost in in all of that um i think that i don't know i guess how was it how was it playing out for you was it that you were like what were you feeling lost in i suppose i don't know i think you know i use the word depression like i think a lot of people um there's there's a lot of i think it's a word that the the connotations are are broad Mm -hmm. and for different people and their experiences but i I guess it was probably a, a a type of depression and i don't think you could really pinpoint anything when you're there yeah um, as to what the causes are or, or how you're feeling. It's just, there's, you know, um, it's just, it's hard to, uh, um, you just, you feel like you're stuck mm-hmm. and, and, um, and not really knowing why and why you feel a certain way. And, and, and I think that comes up for people and you have to kind of break up the dam a little bit and let the water rush through. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. I think one of the realizations that you, that I guess I'm gaining as as an adult is that there's no point where you don't have those moments in your mm-hmm. life. It's like I I felt like I I turned 30 and I was like, "Oh, cool. I I'm, I'm past all of that all that crazy energy of being in your 20s I made and it. I'm an adult. I made right, it." Right. Yeah. I can just I can just get by. And now it's just like, "Oh, no. I've been getting by for too long. This is a yeah. This is nasty. Well, I think that I think making that realization is the is a first step toward toward getting, you know, toward moving forward. Yeah. And the thing about the works for tomorrow record is it's incredibly optimistic. It is. Um, yeah. you know, it's like when I'm talking about um standing on the railroad tracks with the train coming, um I make it through that 
when there's a car coming at me and the headlights coming at, at me, I make it through that. Yeah. Um, those were based on real life experiences. Um, wow. uh, uh, but it, it's, it's like getting past, um, you know, in the, in the, there's a song that closes the record called it's all got to end with me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that was like really looking at my, my ancestors and, and realizing the pain that had preceded me and like, but I'm not going to be the guy that falls here. I'm, I'm going to be strong and, 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 you know, and move forward. Yeah. Um, and, it, and that, so that it was a real cathartic thing for me. Um, and the, I have demos of all those songs and I was writing them. Uh, and in a like a in a single day of just the, m- the music and the words and having them on an mp3 by lunchtime and it they, the songs were just pouring out of me wow um and and which is the best way for me to work is where i get this stream because you know, once it ends it's over for months sure but yeah you know and i think that's why the thematic elements are, are strong on that record is that because it all came out um yeah. At one time. Well, I can't wait for the next time that it all comes out again. I've got those songs. That's great. I can, I'm really <laughs> excited. Do another do another month of the hideout and I'll be there. Yeah, all right. It's great talking to you. Thanks for coming Thanks, over. Tim. All right. Hey, Lordy. What a time. Rick has walked the path and continues to walk it, finding ways to continue to churn out incredible records through all sorts of life changes, a lot of good to take from conversation like that appreciate rick taking the time to come and talk to me and to do so with candor some of these conversations just seem to come in at the right times thankful for this one check out 11th dream day online 11thdreamday.com and i'd like to invite y'all to look in the episode notes of this podcast there is a special spotify playlist i put together an introductory course in 11th dream day dive right into that subscribe to this podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher we're on spotify we're on bandcamp better yet podcast.bandcamp.com the website better yet pod.com and what with all the changes that are happening in my world we're gonna have to put better yet into a back burner slot for really the first time in since I've started it, this has always been number one, and I got some things that I gotta put together in my life right now. And taking the time that I usually take to do this on a weekly basis is just not really going to be manageable. We'll be popping back in every other week if we can, but subscribe to the podcast so that you can get new updates uh, when we put episodes out. We'll try to keep those somewhat consistent, but it's just going to have to come out the way that it comes out onward. Thank you so much. Thanks to Rick. Big thanks to Mike Boyd sending big love over to David Anthony this week and a happy birthday shout out to one of the reasons that this podcast happened and uh, someone who uh, this particular episode wouldn't have happened without, and that is Carrie Crisp, my father. 
We'll talk soon. Thanks, Bubbas. to end with me.